Hey, we're back, and this is our series, Words to Live By. Today, our special guest is none other than Pastor Lyndon Platt, a pastor of Connections. Lyndon, welcome here. Thanks. I love the stuff you got on the set here. Um, Hey, we're going to have a little dialogue, get people an opportunity to get to know you better. Um, I usually ask the question, like, start with your childhood. Where did you grow up, and what was that like? And I know for you, it was different than for most of us. Yeah, I grew up in Alberta different places in Alberta. My dad was a pastor initially, um, and then he decided it was time to go back to school. So as part of that whole journey, um, I grew up in a Christian home, but there was tragedy there really. In a brief nutshell, my mom went to work to kind of support the family while dad was in school. She was a realtor, and uh, on one occasion, she took a gentleman out to see an acreage east of Edmonton and never came back. Mm -hmm. So her Body was found seven months later, wow. and uh, so that shapes you for sure. Yeah. I was five at the time, wow. and uh, and so as part of that, I got to watch my dad walk through something that he just simply called the Valley of Shadows from mm-hmm. Psalm 23. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, um, God walked him on a journey, and and had all kinds of things to teach him about grief, about mm-hmm. loss, about God. Why do you allow things to happen to people that love you? Yeah. Um, and so as part of that, after he remarried, we had two, I have an older brother and two younger sisters from the, okay. from, from our, the two different marriages. Um, mm-hmm. But as part of that, dad committed himself to sharing his story, God's story, mm-hmm. in a book called Valley of Shadows. He wrote mm-hmm. that book, shared the story of mom's um, being missing and being murdered, wow. but also more about what God did mm-hmm. in shaping him. Wow. And then he would get asked to travel a lot of places, especially in Western Canada, and he would share his testimony. On one of those occasions, uh, he and my second mom were killed in a plane crash on the way to Cranbrook in uh, 1978. So again, at 11, uh, losing, uh, losing parents again. Wow. So that shaped me a lot. And some of the things that, that I matter to me uh, have a lot to do with healing, a lot mm-hmm. to do with, God, how do you walk through that sort of stuff? with people. And uh, so even what I'm going to share today has some of that in there, but, but more than that, I just, I realize that there's hurts in all of our lives, mine included, that God's word speaks to and the Holy Spirit speaks to. And I'm a, I'm a real big advocate for God, take those painful times and shape them. And then as you shape them, then use the, the comfort you gave us. Right. <clears throat> comfort others. And I feel like that's one of the unique gifts that God has given me in the tragedy to be able to walk with people in pain. Yeah. I mean, I, I can say I've certainly seen that. I've experienced that from you. you and you've some, walked it yourself. Yeah, some of my pain. And I just love how you care and love, love on people. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's quite a childhood. Um, so we graduated from high school. Yep. And then what Life, what did life look like so, after that? Since grade eight, I thought I was going to be a pastor. And then yeah. uh, everybody told me I should be a pastor. So I went to Bethany Bible Institute in 84 after I graduated mm-hmm. high school. Three years there, uh, went there mostly to play hockey and find a wife. How'd, failed that, at, how'd that go? Failed at both. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. So after that, um, struggled with some, some stuff where it was like, God, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. So I went back mm-hmm. to Calgary, just took a year of university then did a year of missions with an organization called Venture Teams International, traveled a lot of Canada and Australia. And during that time, God said, it's time to go back. So I went to Briarcrest, um, 
did two more years there to finish up a degree and succeeded. Bridalcrest. Bridalcrest and succeeded yeah. in both playing hockey there for one year mm -hmm. and finding a wife. Wow. Jaretha, That's a comeback. That's a comeback. Mm -hmm. It is an amazing win. And in fact, just celebrated 30 years of married life with oh, Jaretha. Fantastic. So, yeah. so you guys met at Viable School. We did. Yep. Good for you. Now you have kids. Do. Four of them. Mm -hmm. uh, two are married. So Tegan is married to Sebastian. Jaden is married to Trish, yeah. and then Josiah and Justin. Mm -hmm. And uh, anything on the horizon for you in that way? Like, well, I mean, there's relationships that cause children to be born. Mm -hmm. So, going to be a Gramps in September. That's and pretty it's exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. yeah, very exciting. I didn't have anything to represent that. Otherwise, it would be on my table. Yeah, here. diapers. Yeah. Diapers would have been appropriate, that's right? Right, right. exactly. Uh, Except you yeah. wait, you yeah. wait. There'll well, be lots I, of those. And I hope you'll get involved in that. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you grew up in a Christian home. Yeah. Was Jesus sort of really real to you, right, at an early age? Was there a, a turning point where you said, you know, I'm all in on this? Or yeah. how did that shape out for you? I, I think there's been stages. And I always talk about Shrek. Shrek is, it talks about onions and ogres have layers like an onion. Mm -hmm. I feel like God's journey with me has had lots of layers. Mm -hmm. When I was six years old, I came to Christ after watching the movie The Thief in the Night. Like, I say this cautiously, but that literally scared the hell out of me. And mm -hmm. I, I go, that, that's, why were my parents even letting me go to that movie at six? Anyway, went to camp when I was 14. And really, that was a very key moment just before I got baptized, where I'd made a transitionary God, I surrender, because I was just kind of living it out like often Christian kids do. But then through different circumstances, even up until, you know, recently, God just keeps going, okay, I want, it, I want that part. I want to show you that you're you're a legalist, that you're that you're living trying to earn my love, mm. you know. And so over time, there's been journeys of understanding grace and understanding mercy, and understanding your natural tendency to strive rather than rest. Mm. So I would say 14 was kind of like that starting point, but there's been significant moments along the way, mm. and and part of that, I mean, we've talked about this, but part of that was when you first came and I asked you the simple question is what would Jesus do a really good question? And you said, it's not a bad question, but it's not a good first question. You said, what has Jesus done? And so I've been on a journey over the last seven, eight years hmm. trying to figure out what, that, what does that mean and what's, what's the breadth of grace and what Jesus has done. Yeah. So, Wow, what a journey, hey? Yeah, it's a good one. And it's never over. Nope. So um, tell us something that people will, most people wouldn't know about you. Oh, wow. Uh, well, they, everyone would know that I love riding uh, my three-wheel spider. A tricycle? It's, it's, it's not a tricycle. It's not a tricycle. It's, they're not training wheels, but it's lots of fun. <laughs> um, I, I would say I'm pretty open book. So what people don't know about me, um, oh, man, I had my first kiss at five and it was with my cousin oh so no that, kidding that's wow. and I my brother was the one that set it up we were having playing wedding downstairs oh, man. I'm spoiled now yeah <laughs> and I I hid that we're gonna talk about hiding but okay. that was something I hid from my parents my brother held it over me for years Teresa knows about it though she'll know now she'll know now <laughs> hey I know you love your spider and yep. uh, you've let me ride it so thanks yep. for that yeah it's uh it's fun to see fun to enjoy Really excited about what you're going to share with us today, verses that have impacted you. Yep. And as you share from your heart, 
Um, I hope everybody has a Kleenex box close by. Uh, <laughs> and I see that you don't, so this could be a wild ride. Yeah. God bless you, Lyndon, as Thanks. you talk to us. Thanks. Thanks. So I wanted to dive right in, right into the scripture that uh, I've chosen for today, because it's had a significant impact on my life, and I want to share with you what it's um, meant to me. From 1 John 1, verse 5, all the way to 2, verse 2, it says this, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So why do these verses matter to me? Well, first of all, my struggle with sin is real. See, according to John, it should be pretty evident, both to God, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. But it should be obvious to me as well. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But there's a few examples, just from the book of John, 1 John, that I, I want to just show you, and help you understand how, how it affects me. Chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So does that mean my attitude towards the people who don't know how to travel around a traffic circle by the church here matters? Especially those of you that maybe come out of church and I see you travel it wrong or I travel it wrong? My attitude matters. Verse, chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So then what I value and how that's reflected in what I do with my time, my money, what I invest in, it matters. Chapter 3, verse 16. But by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the, for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God, God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Oof. So when I see someone who has a practical need, and my first thought is, well, if only they would get a job or make better decisions or I just don't have time for this, it matters. Honestly, when I look in the mirror, I can have a whole lot more word and talk rather than action and truth. So when I read the book of John or other scriptures, it becomes pretty evident pretty quickly that when it comes to God's standards, even when I really try, I fall short. And I would imagine you can probably relate to that. It's like I'm claiming to have fellowship with God, but I'm still struggling to not walk in the darkness. So what? What's the big deal about sin? Why can't I just not worry about sin, my attitudes, my actions? Well, right from creation, 
God told us the effects of sin. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death is the product of sin. As Paul wrote in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You earn death when you sin. Eternal separation from God. Or Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sin basically puts us in a position no one wants to be in, separated from God and under his wrath. So I, this passage is important to me because the struggle with sin is real. But also it's important to me because it's in my nature to hide. When I was in grade one, we were at this, this kids club at our church. It was called Whirlybirds. It was really kind of one of those things I used to get teased about all the time. But you had this little red beanie and a little helicopter on top. And you'd learn scriptures and you'd get all these little extra things for, for your beanie if you, if you accomplished all these different tasks, kind of like scouts and all that sort of thing. But one day after Whirlybirds, me and my friend went to the little bus shelter that was close to our, our church, and they had this machine with um, juices in chocolate milk-type containers, like the cartons. And you could go in there, and if you put in money, you could slide it out and pull it out of the, out of the machine, and you could get yourself a drink. Well, I just decided I wasn't going to pay. I was just going to try and rip it out. So I go in there, and I try and pull it over, and I start trying to get it out through one of the cracks. and pull really hard, and it just explodes all over the machine. Well, of course, I was in trouble for trying to steal it, and I was in trouble for making a mess. I just ran, me and my buddy that were there, we just ran and went back to the church, and no one ever found out. But I lived in fear of someone finding out for a very long time. I don't think my parents ever found out, for sure. We're prone to hide, prone to hide our sin. But why do I hide? I think, honestly, it's standard equipment in the human being. It comes with it. How do I know? Well, Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, demonstrated what it's like to hide. They knew that God had said, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. They knew that their sin would have immediate consequences. And as soon as they did sin, they began to experience those consequences. Shame, verse 7 of chapter 3 of Genesis. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. But also the consequence of fear. Verse 8, when the cool of the evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Other consequences, once, once they talked a bit about it, God said there's going to be these kinds of consequences, pain, relational tension, thorns, thistles, the sweat of the brow kind of hard work, and ultimately, as we talked about before, death, separation from God. So they hid, and honestly, that's what we kind of do. When we have sin in our life, it's much easier to hide, to go into the dark places, 
and say, I don't want anybody to know. And as long as no one knows, I'm going to be okay because then I can avoid the consequences. If I can just get away with it, if I can hide it, it might just all go away. But does it really help? Does hiding really help? Now, I don't know if you noticed, but in Genesis 3, God asks three questions in his interaction with Adam and Eve. I would call them strange questions. First of all, he says, Adam and Eve, where are you? And then he says, who, who told you you were naked? And then he says, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Like, wait a minute, God, you know everything. I think you already knew. And I think the Bible is pretty clear that God's omniscience or knows everything would have made it pretty easy for him to answer his own questions. It's kind of like someone said to me one time, we were talking, and they said, you know what, whenever it comes to the stuff you don't want to get out, don't ever tell the pastor, because if you tell the pastor some bad stuff, God might find out. Well, that's ridiculous. Or it's like the little kid who plays hide-and-seek. When it's their turn to hide, instead of going off into a corner somewhere, they close their eyes and say, come find me, as if they're hidden. But the reality is God knows already. He knew Adam's sin and he knows mine. But I see in the questions God asked just a little of the first notes of the gift of confession. Come out of hiding, Adam, Eve, Lyndon, and just tell me what you've done. Because even in our failures, God desires relationship. Come talk to me. Let me walk this out with you together. Just come to me. Stop hiding. 1 John 1.9, which we'll get back to in a second, says if we confess our sins, bring it to the light. Now, I am not going to say that if Adam and Eve would have confessed, they would have just owned things, stopped hiding, that this would have stopped the cascade of consequences that their decision set off. I'm not saying that. Sin had its effect, and those consequences have been severe. But what's interesting is, how did Adam and Eve respond? Instead of owning their sin, they played a spirited round of the blame game. First one, Adam says, it was the woman you gave me. And then, actually, if you look at that carefully, he's actually blaming God. It was the woman you gave me, God. And then, of course, Eve's response was to blame the serpent. If you go back to 1 John, though, and why this passage matters to me. It's because Adam and Eve's story, and my story, and the story of so many of the people I walk with, they remind me of this third point, that I need an advocate. Hmm. Chapter 2 of 1 John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal. But if anyone does sin... So that's assumed that we probably will at times. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, it's really important that we take a look at what advocate means. What is an advocate? Well, just simply put, it's one who pleads another's case before a judge. Defense lawyer. Someone who stands up and says, wait a minute, I'm going to defend this person's cause. And according to the 1 John chapter 2, 
Jesus is standing before the Father, pleading our case. But what's he saying, and, and what qualifies him to be able to do that? Well, to understand that, we need to tackle a big, fat, ugly word that most of us don't use every day. And I have a hard time even saying it sometimes. Propitiation. What does it mean? It's simply the means of appeasing. Another way of saying it would use the phrase atoning sacrifice to make amends or reparation as for an offense or a crime to atone for one's sins. The making of amends for a wrong one is done by paying money or otherwise helping those who have been wronged. The righteous sentence of the law has been executed and it's done. In a, in a phrase, the debt has been paid. Or, I love this, paid in full. The debt that is caused by our sin is paid. So what Jesus is standing before the Father saying is simply this. As your advocate, Father, as the advocate for Lyndon and for these people, we took care of their sin at the cross. I lived on this earth, fully God, fully man. I lived a perfect life. Didn't have any of my sin to deal with. And so, and so instead, I could pay for theirs. Paid in full. Father, we took care of their sin at the cross. So I, yeah, I have a sin problem. And I have a hiding problem. But joyfully, I have an advocate. But the question is, what does John call me to do in response to that? Simply put, bring it into the light. Verse 9 of 1 John 1 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Three really important pieces in that scripture. The Father is faithful to forgive. In other words, in two words, he will. But it also says the Father is justified in forgiving. Because, as we just talked about, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, it's paid in full. So he is faithful, he will, and he is just. It's within his moral right to forgive us our sins. But then also he is thorough in his forgiveness. It says he will forgive all our sins. Not some. Not the ones that we somehow manage to catch. But all. And so that, that brings me to a point where I go, boy, there's, that's a relief because sometimes I don't even know when I sin. But when, when, when it, God brings it to mind, I need to bring it to him, bring it into the light. But he's faithful, he's just, and he's thorough. See, confession was never meant to bring shame or fear because that's how we view confession. Confession is like, well, if I bring it to somebody, there's going to be all kinds of shame and fear and what if, what if but rather freedom. Remember what we said before. Even in our failures, God's desire is relationship. Come to me, God says. Talk to me. Let's walk this out together. He says, I know what you're hiding. I know how it affects you, and I have it, I've got it covered because I want you to walk in freedom. So confession is a gift that God gives us. And it's an invitation that we have because we have an advocate. This became really um, poignantly uh, 
understood a little bit more for me when I was in a prayer time with someone, and the Lord gave me a picture. And it's, uh, it, it comes out of a very, one of my favorite movies, um, Sister Act 2. And it, in, that, in that movie, at the very end, there's a, a singing competition, and there's this choir, and they're getting up to sing, and they're, the, the choir is, is a group of, of people that are from a Catholic school, and, and you know, they're kind of from the hood, and so they're not expected to win. But the picture is, is one of this girl, who's the soloist, standing kind of the, on the stage, and she's supposed to lead out, but she's worried because her mom is in the audience, and there's a whole bunch of other people in the audience, but there are judges also in the audience. And so as I'm praying, this picture is there, and, and God is morphing this picture because there's a spotlight in the middle of the stage. And the girl needs to step up. And in the picture, it's the, 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 the picture is one of stepping into the center of the spotlight and just confidently doing that. But what happened to me in that picture as I was praying through it, the Lord changed it on me because he emptied the room of everybody except the three judges. And he moved the three judges to the front row. And in that, in that time of prayer, I saw this person walk into the light. And I would have thought, based on some of the ways that my thinking goes, that the judges would have watched that and would have started writing, okay, this is, this is you know, what I noticed and this is the judging part. But in the picture, God showed me three people standing and applauding, a standing ovation. And the Lord expressed to me that that was a picture for me to understand that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit love it when we come into the light with our sin. Not so that we can be judged, but that we can receive grace and mercy and be free. And so my, my prayer is for you with this scripture that you will see the fact that, yeah, we, we do, the, the struggle with sin is real. We'll see the fact that we are prone to hide, but that we have an advocate who calls us to confession and to freedom and to bringing it into the light so it can be dealt with. But, but how do I do that? What are some practical things? There's just a few things. One of the things, when, when I deal with my sin, I want to learn to practice this, and I want to encourage you to do the same, is journal. Write it out. Talk about the things with God that you're concerned about, the sin you're struggling with. Write it out, and then I, I would say take a big, fat, old, red felt marker and just write paid in full after you've read some of the scriptures we've talked about today. And then commit to addressing the issue because you don't want to just deal with that but then not deal with the issue. And then I would suggest, though, take that paper and burn it as one step, one practical, tangible step that you can go, man, I can, I can bring my sin to the light and give it to Jesus. But the, other, the next thing I want to just encourage you to do is be part of a huddle. You know, we, at church here, we have threes and fours, and, and that group of people, guys with guys, ladies with ladies, is a place where it can become, you can grow into a safe place to be able to share with each other. Because, you know, verse 7 of 1 John 1 says, if we walk in the light, which is what we've been encouraging you to do today, as he is in the light, we actually have fellowship with one another. 
There's something about when we share deeply and ask questions of each other where we, we actually see not only the freedom from sin, but protection because there is accountability and there's care and there's a safe place to process our stuff. So I want to encourage you, if you want to be a part of a three and four, get on the connect button at the church here. Send us a little note and say, hey, I want to be a part of a three and four and we'll do the best we can to try and make that happen or help you with that. But then another one that, that came out of a book I read uh, a while ago called Soul Care is consider the possibility of a full life confession. This, the, the author basically says that he has two or three people in his life that he has committed to, to, that he wants to die with absolutely zero secrets with those few people. That way he doesn't have to hide anything. There's no skeletons. He's confessed. He's got it out in the open. He's brought it into the light. You know, my, my deepest desire for myself and the deepest desire I have, particularly for the men that I work with, but, but all of us, is that we would understand the beauty of being able to walk in the light as he is in the light. Being able to be open, being able to be vulnerable and get, dealing with our stuff because we have an advocate. So there's a song that I've asked the worship team to sing to kind of help us now at the end in response, it's simply called Run to the Father. And I won't go through all the words, but there's one phrase that I hope is, is your commitment this week. It says, I'm done with the hiding. That would be my hope and prayer for you as you engage with the Father, as you engage with your advocate, and as you receive the forgiveness that's been paid for for us. Lord, I, uh, I just invite you to do your work to expose those things in us gently and with love and give us the courage, Lord, to walk in the light, to bring things to the light, to give you that sense of, of, uh, of joy in seeing us be free and to give us that sense of freedom. We trust you as you do that, Lord.